All right. Well, again, welcome back to uh, Lower Town. If you've walked in here in just a couple minutes, those of you who, again, don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, pastor here at, at Lower Town. And so we are in week three of our current series called Made for God, Identity, Gender, and Sex. And um, we, this is, almost this beginning part has been a, uh, almost the beginning part has been like a, whoops, I'm going to go back to for me. Sorry. We'll figure it out. Um, uh, the first three sermons have almost been like a, like a mini-series within the series, if, if you will. And so started off by looking at the authority of God uh, that's revealed, that he has revealed himself to us through Scripture, uh, through the Word. And so we can look at the Bible as trustworthy and true and, and then say, okay, uh, is this my authority? And is this my authority on on this topic? And, and, and should my experiences, should uh, culture... Uh, does that, where does that fit in? And just looking at, man, the Bible is my highest authority. It's not my only authority, uh, but it is the highest authority. And so where is it that that, that then intersects with um, myself and my identity and my gender and my sexuality? And so uh, we did that uh, week one. Last week, uh, Paul, uh, one of our elders here, uh, looked at the goodness of, of that aspect, of the goodness that we have in our sexuality um, and this, this week, we're going to be looking at um, specifically the brokenness. And so uh, this week, uh, the title of the sermon is Despising the Shame. And this is going to be Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Uh, well, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, that's like the last passage I'm going to look at. We're going to be all over the Bible today. And so that just happened to be the, the passage I put up there. So um, if you're turning to Hebrews 12, just wait. We're gonna, it's going to be, that's like the last slide uh, today of Hebrews 12. So... Um, but before I do get started, I do want to give a little bit of a, a caveat or a, or a warning. Um, and, and while I'm not going to be getting uh, specific uh, with, with sexual sins or anything like that today, uh, that will be true in, in weeks to come, but not necessarily today. Uh, but I could say some things that could bring up some past uh, trauma, uh, hurt. Um, and so I just want to just put that out there. And so if at any point you're uncomfortable uh, whatever it may be, uh, don't, don't hesitate. No one's going to be thinking anything or judging you about it. Just please remove yourself from anything. My goal is not to make anyone feel uncomfortable, uh, but to simply see Jesus as the hero uh, who sticks up for, uh, for us, sticks up for those who he loves, uh, even when we feel unworthy or unlovable. So that being said, I, I have a, I don't know, maybe this has happened to you in your life. Um, it, usually, it, it, whether it's a movie or, or a book or your, or your own life of having, I don't know if you, if you had older siblings, uh, usually an older brother, uh, of a time where, where somebody st- stood up for you uh, when you were being you know, picked on or beat up on or whatever. And, um, and I remember this was back in, in junior high. Uh, we call it junior high from Chicago. It's middle school here. Uh, but it was junior high in, in, in Chicago. And, and we were, um, we played basketball at PE and my PE teacher was also a referee and he would just stand though at midcourt. He would never move. Like he just would just stand at midcourt to, to referee. And we had really, really intense basketball games. Uh, and so just fun fact, I've been the same size, same size, same height, not weight, uh, same height since junior high, since I was 12. I have not grown an inch since I was 12 years old. I have my shoe, I still have shoes that I wore in junior high. Um, and so I was pretty dominant in PE, right? That was like my thing, you know what I mean? Like everyone literally looked up to me. I was dunking on kids in 12th grade and it was amazing. Uh, but there was a couple kids in my class, and so we would have PE together. It was seventh and eighth graders together. And so when I was in 
Seventh grade, you know, the eighth grade kids were usually a little bit bigger and faster and stronger um, than the seventh graders, except me, right? And uh, we would have PE, and so I was always picked to be the captain of the basketball, you know, for just PE and someone else. And, and my, one of my best friends, his name was Sibby Samuel, and he uh, was not athletic, right? He just didn't have an athletic bone in his body, and he got teased a lot because of it. And there was something my dad had always instilled in us kids, um, you know, to, to befriend those who might be sitting by themselves and, and might be a little bit different or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't don't seem to fit in. Like, be, be their friend. And, and that's what we did. And, and I was really glad because I might have helped Sibby on the basketball court, um, but he helped me in science class. You know what I mean? Like, he helped the big dumb kid a lot. And, uh, but I remember, though, this one, one week, I was like, I wanted to pick Sibby first. I wanted him to, to see what that felt like. And so I picked Sibby first, and my PE teacher was like, no. You're not doing that. And I was like, no, 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 no. I, I want to pick my friend. <laughs> like, and he like wouldn't let me pick my friend first. So then I picked another kid who may not have been the most athletic. And, my, and the PE teacher was like, hey, Brian, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm, I'm picking my team. And now, now I'm getting mad. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're putting my friends to shame because they're not good at basketball. You know what I mean? And so we did. And I, I picked all the kids who just never got picked, you know? And I'm not, I'm not trying to build myself up because like I said, Sibby helped me out in, in every other class except PE. Um, and I, but we had this rule that if you got um, fouled, uh, you, your team automatically got a point and then you would shoot your free throws. So it was pretty, pretty easy to get a four-point play. Um, and, and so that game, though, I did something, I'm a little ashamed of it, um, that when I would drive to the hoop, I would actually slap my own arm. And because the, the, the teacher was in the middle of the court, he couldn't see anything, but he could hear my arm getting slapped. And I'd, oh, and then, and then I'd get the foul called. And we ended up winning with this ragtag team of, of, of kids, right? And, and, and again, <laughs> there's something about when somebody, right, older brother or just the, the hero of a story who just, somebody who, who doesn't feel worthy, right? And I'm sure, I know my friend Sibby felt that way a lot of times when it came to physical things that just didn't feel good enough. Um, and, and just being able to have uh, an advocate come alongside and say, no, I, I actually, you're, you're my friend. And you don't need to feel ashamed because you can't throw a basketball uh, through a hoop. You know what I mean? Like what a dumb thing to feel ashamed about. Um, and so uh, that's what we're gonna be looking at today through the eyes of, of Christ. So again, last week, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, uh, he got through, through this aspect of looking at harmony in Genesis chapter two, and there's kind of three different aspects of of uh, harmony that we see God and humanity in beautiful harmony. Uh, that there is no animosity. It talks about how God walks with us and, and Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, just just hanging out with with God. Uh, that that there's there's no animosity there. Um, and then, then, then also within nature and humanity, uh, that there, you don't have to worry about uh, tornadoes and tropical storms and hurricanes and cancer and sickness. It was just beautiful harmony in the garden. And, and then, but not also just, just God and nature uh, with humanity, but specifically between man and woman. And that's what Paul looked at last week of looking at this beautiful uh, harmony between man and woman. And everything is good. Everything is good. And what Paul looked at last week is even my sexuality, was created as a good thing, uh, but we don't we don't stay there too too long. Uh, that we uh, look at this disharmony that happens in Genesis chapter three, and so I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis chapter three. Um, I'm going to I'm just going to how about we just turn these off or something because that's just going to drive me nuts the whole the whole time trying to keep you. So I'm just 
Just, I will just, if I have a picture, which I don't have a lot of them, I will describe them to you this morning. But let me just read Genesis chapter three, verses two through five. And this is actually the third week in a row uh, where, I have, where I've read this. And so it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. So again, just context, the serpent then is, is, is uh, tempting Eve and saying, no, 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 no. Hey, isn't it true that God said you can't eat of any, any tree in the garden? And she's like, no, no, no. No, that's not, what, that's not what God said. She says that we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent just says a blatant lie. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and the serpent here that we know, according to the rest of the Bible, is, is the devil. And the devil here is, is tempting Eve, saying you want autonomy. You want to function for yourself. You want to be able to choose for yourself to say, oh, no, 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 uh, uh, this is what's good for me. You, you don't tell me, God, what's good for me. I want to know what's good for me, and I will choose what's good for me. And God, you for sure cannot tell me what's bad for me or what's evil. I get to choose that. You, you can't tell me that eating of this fruit is evil. That's not how this works. I'm going to choose this autonomy. And so then we see, again, just this disarmament, this disharmony that happens in all of humanity, that every single human being that's ever been born uh, from our first parents of Adam and Eve is, immediately falls into dissension and disharmony in those three aspects of God and humanity, nature and humanity, and between man and the woman. And so even our sexuality then is in disharmony and everything falls apart. And so then we have this uh, image of what happens, that we have uh, respect that is between God and humanity, and now all of a sudden it's rebellion. That we have this aspect of being naked and unashamed, and this isn't just a physical nakedness, and, and yes, we're told that Adam and Eve were unclothed, um, but it's not, it's so much more than that. That intimacy within that aspect is so much more than just being physically naked. It is intellectually, emotionally, spiritually naked and unashamed. That I can say what I'm thinking when I think it, and I don't have to worry about any guilt or shame uh, that happens to it. Um, and so this aspect of guilt and shame, this is from psychology today, because there is a difference. There's a, there's a, there's a theolo theological, yes, yeah, true, uh, but psychological definition difference between guilt and shame. And so guilt is a feeling of, of remorse, uh, for some uh, offense, a crime, uh, or wrongdoing, whether that is real or imagined. Okay, so, so I have this guilt of something I did, and it, it may be an imagined guilt. Like, there's no reason for me to feel guilty about this. And, and, and some of us, probably a lot of us, maybe had that growing up. We did something in our homes, and we felt guilty as if something horrendous happened, and, and yet it, it just, it wasn't that way. You know what I mean? Like, I stood too close to the TV, uh, right, and it's like, oh, you're, you're gonna go blind, right? You're, you're gonna go cross-eyed if you stand too close to TV and you feel guilty about this thing. That's just not real. Uh, and yet, you know, I say the same things to my kids, you know, so. But then shame, shame is different. Um, we're gonna spoke, look a lot about shame today. And shame, and this is from psychologytoday.com, shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness, which we're gonna look at consciousness a little bit today as well, of something dishonorable or improper done by oneself or by another. That somebody can do something to me to make me feel dirty and shameful. 
This other aspect of disharmony that we see that God has promised to give his blessings, but instead because of sin and the brokenness, that there's physical and spiritual punishment. Instead of God as my friend, we learn that Adam and Eve, their immediate reaction was to hide from God and become his enemy. And that is true of every single human being who's ever been born. We see that instead of trust, there's fear. Instead of love, there's hatred. Instead of intimacy, right? That nakedness, that unashamedness, closeness is now separation and exile. Instead of freedom, there's slavery. And instead of honesty, there's lying. And instead of responsibility, there's blaming. Immediately, God says, Adam, right, where, where are you? And he's like, oh, I, I, I hid because we were naked. And he's like, how do you know that you were naked? And his first word is, the woman that you gave me. <laughs> it blames it on God. You, you gave me this woman. You, you're the one who said I wasn't okay by myself. And now here we are. God, this is kind of on you. And I'm just going to throw my wife under the bus too, right? Just immediate blame. Instead of owning up, taking responsibility, that, that freedom that we should have of unashamedness but is lost. And yet we have disharmony again in all of humanity. And this is specifically true this morning when we come to the topic of our sexuality, that it's broken. And that, that phrase, our sexuality is broken, is something that is, it is such a, it is a phrase that is so countercultural to what we hear. That we, don't, we don't hear that. Yo, this, is who, this is who you are. This is your identity. Your identity is your sexuality. Your identity is how you express yourself. And there's nothing wrong with this. It makes you feel good. Do that. That's great. That's a good thing if it makes you happy. The problem is the God of the Bible doesn't ever talk about our happiness. That's not what Christianity is. It's revealing that I am broken and God can offer me freedom and victory and joy even in my brokenness. So it might be countercultural, but yet everybody and everything is broken because of sin. That my sexuality is broken. My wife's sexuality is broken. Your sexuality is broken. Your grandma's sexuality is broken. Right? It's hard to think about my sweet old grandma, R.I.P., Right? But that she, her sexuality was broken, not grandma. Yeah, that's what, ha, that's, what, that's what all of humanity means. That there's something in us that just isn't right. That there is no moral high ground at the foot of the cross. You might not understand my struggles, and I might not understand your struggles, but Jesus does. Jesus gets it, and he understands it, because he took on flesh, and he became a human being. Everything is distorted and twisted by the fall. Everyone, everywhere, and every desire is twisted. So again, I can't stand up here and say, I've got this figured out. As a pastor, as a, as a man who's married and has kids, I don't, I don't have the authority here. I'm, I'm messed up. So, kind of shifting gears here, I want to go after this in one way of asking the question, what is the gospel? And if you've been around Lower Town for a while, you know that we've kind of summarize the gospel into four uh, words. That, uh, that we have God, that in the beginning God creates, and again, it's good. And then you have man, and, and, and man enters in the scene, and, and sin enters the world, and everything's broken. And then you have Jesus, who is the only answer uh, for salvation, to say, no, I can forgive you of sins, and I'm the only one capable of doing that, because I am fully God, and I am fully man. 
And so I'm the only one who can actually die and forgive you of your sins. And then we have faith. And we put our faith, only faith and belief in Christ. And so if we were to hand out three by five cards and to have you write out the gospel, uh, you'd probably have something along the lines of that it has something to do with the forgiveness of my sins uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that may be the case, and that's certainly true. That's not wrong. But only stating that, and only stating that way of thinking about the gospel neglects sins that were committed against me. Right? There's something about other people's sin that affects me, that can make me feel dirty and ashamed. And so these can be sins that are, that are committed against me, but it can also be sins that might include false teachings from parents, from the church, that has made you feel less than, that has made you feel not pure. The Bible is full of examples of uncleanness, especially in the Old Testament. This, this will make you unclean. If you touch this, you'll be unclean. If you eat this, it'll be unclean. If you, if you bleed, if anything from inside of your body comes outside of your body, you're unclean. And you have to go through all this ritual of cleansing. And so when things happen to us like that, we feel dirty, whether you grew up in the church or not. And again, this could be an unwanted sexual act that is committed against us that isn't welcome, and that's where the shame enters in. Right? That definition of this painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable or improper done by oneself or another. And this can also be the church or a parent that puts any such, that puts a high view on purity and, and no view of, of forgiveness in Christ. Uh, I grew up in the 80s in a church, a very conservative church, where we had this high view of this purity culture. Um, and maybe I wasn't, I wasn't taught that in the 80s, so let's say 90s, the early aughts uh, is when I was in the church. And, and there was this high view of, of purity. And as a, as a guy, I felt it, right? But I know I didn't feel it nearly as much as the girls did that I grew up with. That, that everything was put on them. You gotta dress modestly, you gotta do this, and if, you, if, you, and if something happens to you, it's your fault, right? It's never the guy's fault. Of course it's not. I remember my, my youth pastor, he, he got up and he was, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, the, the, the Corinthians are asking questions to, to the apostle Paul. And then Paul goes to answer them. And, and, and they ask a question, the, the Corinthians ask the apostle Paul a question because they have this, this thing that the physical realm, the physical world is bad and the spiritual is good. And so they ask the question, they say, hey, Paul, we're, we're, we're learning that it's actually not good for men and women, wife, husband and wife, uh, to, to like be intimate together. And, and so the way that word, that phrase, that question is phrased in the King James language is, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And then the next verse, though, the Apostle Paul goes to explain. He says, uh, nope, that's a really bad thing. If you're, you're married, you need to be together. That's just a, a foothold for the devil to destroy you. And yet the way I was taught that was just in the, in the language of, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And my youth pastor getting up there and would literally just go, touch, don't touch. Touch, don't touch. Men, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And so when I'm, right, I'm, I'm in high school and I got these desires and I, and, I, and I touch my girlfriend's hand. Shame, right? I know it seems silly, but it's true. The guilt and the shame from that. I remember we'd go to these tent meetings. We had these revival meetings. <laughs> 
<laughs> so if you're new to the church, you're like, what is going on right now? Uh, we, we would, we'd go to these revival meetings. Right? You like plan it. We are going to have revival this, this week on this day. Um, and, and we would go to these tent meetings. And, and this is the way these, these, they had a, these evangelists. They're these like traveling pastors and you know, a bunch of teenagers, right? And they would take a, they would take a rose, and they would take that rose and they'd hand it out to someone and say, hey, I just want you to pass that rose around. Just go ahead and pass it around. And they would go and, and give their, their message on feeling, uh, on this idea of purity culture, of be pure, be clean, don't be undefiled, right? Save yourself for marriage, fill in the blank, put a purity ring on, do what you gotta do. And the big, the big climax of the, of the whole thing was let me have that rose back and then the rose would come up and it'd be broken and bent and the petals would be half missing and he would look at you and he'd say, who would want that? That's bad, right? And if you sat under that garbage, I'm sorry. I'm sorry on behalf of the church. I'm sorry on behalf of my Savior. Because you know who my Savior would want? That rose. He despises the shame. He gets rid of the guilt and the shame that we feel of sins committed against us, whether that's physically somebody doing something to me that I, I don't want, or something that has been pressured into this way of thinking and feeling that I'm less than, and I have this, this guilt. It's this idea that if my secrets were exposed to so-and-so, they would hate me. So I want to look at specifically this idea this morning of expiation. It's a theological term. I know I've mentioned it before, but I, it's so vital to our understanding of what the gospel is. Um, I mentioned this uh, not that long ago even, but I'll, I'll say it again. Um, when I was in sixth grade, uh, my teacher, uh, Mrs. Beefus, uh, and it's always funny, no matter how old I get, and um, Mrs. Beefus, great, great woman, uh, uh, she had did this example where she held up a globe, um, and, and she went to the Psalms and this idea that your sins are removed as far as the East is from the West. And she she walked up the globe and said, okay, kids, class, I want you to shout out, just talk, nor, you know, say we're going north, 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 north. Tell me when I start going south, right? And so walking north, 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 south, 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 yay, good job, class. And then she said, okay, now I want to do the same thing. I'm going to start walking west on the globe, and you tell me when I start going east, right? And so west, 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 and then, it, you know, crosses the prime meridian, and, and, you know, big dumb me is like, east, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, no, 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 dummy. Uh, nope, you're, you're, you're missing the point here. We're still going west. We're going to infinitely always be going west. And, and, that, and that is how far God removes our sins. As far as the east is from the west, infinitely gone. That is a simplified way of looking at expiation. And expiation simply just says, I am not defined by my sin. I'm not defined by someone else's sin against me. I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. I'm not saying that that's not important or you shouldn't worry about that or think about that or you don't have to get counseling. I'm not saying that at all. It is extremely important. It does impact us deeply. I'm just saying it doesn't define you. My identity is not defined by sin, mine or others, real or imagined. It's defined by what Christ tells me I am. And so this idea of expiation is essential to our understanding of the gospel. And so I wanted to uh, briefly talk about this theology of a scapegoat 
And, and I've done this not that long ago, and I started going through uh, this idea of scapegoat. And let me explain it. So uh, in Leviticus 16, it's the Day of Atonement. It was this big, big deal in Leviticus. No, oh, it's working now. Okay, great. Uh, this big thing in, in, in Leviticus chapter 16 where you had this uh, scapegoat, which is it's still a phrase that we use today, right? That if somebody uh, takes all the blame for somebody, you know, in the office, like uh, you're on a team and, and everyone messed up, but it's like, oh, hey, let's just blame Jim. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of... Kind of a goof. Everyone, nobody really likes him anyway, so he'll be the scapegoat. Just blame it on Jim. Sorry if your name is Jim. Right? And so that, that's kind of how we use that term scapegoat. And that's a very accurate image of what it was. And so on the Day of Atonement, that was one day out of the year, a priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and, and would go enter into this really special place. And there would be a sacrifice of one goat, and this blood would be shed on the altar. Just one day out of the year, this would happen. But there were two goats, and the other goat, the priest would symbolically place their hands on its head and symbolize as if the sin of the Israelites was entering into that goat, and then they would get it out, and they would kick it out. They'd put it in exile, they'd kick it out of the camp, and it would run away into the wilderness to symbolize this. And so that's, that's what scapegoat is, and, and, and that's a really important term that we'll see here, of somebody else taking my sin, taking my guilt, taking my shame and my sin and separating it as far as the east is from the west. That's really important. So just keep that in, except I don't want to focus on that so much this morning. I want to do something that maybe I know I've never done before and look at a theology of hyssop. <laughs> uh, but it's not that long ago where I did a theology of trees. Um, but today we're going to be looking at, at hyssop. Hyssop was just a plant that grew in the wilderness, still does. Um, it's in the uh, mint family, uh, I guess. What, what is it that makes it, why is it mint's family? Why is mint the patriarch or matriarch of the family? How come, how come mint isn't in the hyssop family? You know what I'm saying? Why is that? I don't get that. Anyways, hyssop, always, every time the word hyssop is used in the Old and New Testament, it's always used in ceremonial cleansing of impurities or for signifying the removal and forgiveness of sins. That's what hyssop is in the Bible. It is a very physical thing, an actual plant that they did things with to symbolize a spiritual reality. Kind of how we view baptism. It's a physical thing. We're gonna, we're gonna dunk you under the water to symbolize this inward reality of that I am in Christ. That's exactly what hyssop is in a sense. And so the first word, the first time this word is used is in the Passover. And in Exodus chapter 12, 21 through 22, let me read this. It says, Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. So what happens? A little bit of context. God shows up, Yahweh shows up in Exodus chapter 11, and this is what's called Passover. This is when the, the death angel passes over the Israelites and so that their firstborn child isn't killed, but the Egyptians' firstborn child is killed. It's a direct attack. I'm not going to get into all of the theology of that, but Pharaoh claimed to be the son of God, claimed to be the eldest of the king, and he's saying, oh, you want to go that route because all, all of the plagues are direct attacks against Egyptian gods, and God shows up and he says, okay, now, now it's going to get real personal. Now it's going to be Pharaoh and me. Pharaoh is going to be this false god. And I'm going to attack the firstborn. And God then goes in Exodus chapter 11, and he calls a shot. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to celebrate this. This is what I want you to eat. And this is how I want you to eat. And what I want you to do right here in Exodus chapter 12, this is now Moses repeating what God has told him to the Israelites. He says, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of 
hyssop. It's the first time that word's used. And dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the tube doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. Now, the hyssop, I, you know, it showed an image of it. It's just, it's just a bush, just a plant. There's nothing miraculous or special. It just happens to be this, right? They had claws and sponges and things like that. They, there could have been maybe a better utensil or device to be able to spread blood on the doorpost, but there's something about this hyssop branch. So I'm gonna take this hyssop and I want you to paint the blood of an innocent lamb that's gonna make the death and, 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 and death pass over you because of the death of this innocent lamb. And you're gonna do that with this hyssop. So the innocent spreading and, and, and loss of life and blood of an innocent lamb, which is again symbolic of the scapegoat and everything that happens is gonna be true also with this hyssop. They're both gonna be running simultaneously. The next time we see the word hyssop in the Bible is in these cleansing laws, these purity laws. In Leviticus chapter 14, one through seven, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person on the day of his cleansing. A leprous was someone who had some kind of physical skin ailment. These are gonna be the laws. This is how he's gonna become pure. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp. Again, this is exile language. Exile, being torn out. And again, this is language that we, we know. So what is exile? And because it's a, it's a popular thing to do, let me, let me quote uh, the T. Swift uh, here uh, in, her, in her song uh, called Exile um, that she sings with uh, bon, bon Iver, uh, bon, bon, bon Iver, Bon Iver. Is that it? Bon Iver? Okay, see, don't, don't do that to me. Uh, <laughs> so the, here's the lyrics, right? I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. You, right, this, you, my person, right? I used to feel safe with you. I used to feel, you, you, you were my homeland, right? I, I was comfortable with you, but, but I couldn't read your mind, and so we broke up for some stupid, arbitrary reason, but, but you were my, I was safe with you. You're not my homeland anymore, and what am I defending now? What's the point? You were my town, and now I'm in exile seeing you out, right? That's, that's what exile is. It's still a language that we use and, 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 and Taylor Swift uses. Uh, she's got a new album coming out, uh, I've heard, uh, if you're interested in that. It's got a really fascinating name, I'm sure. Midnight. It comes out at midnight? Oh, oh it's just called Midnight. I get it. All right. All right, let me keep going here. Exile, in Leviticus chapter 14, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. And then if the, the case of a leprous disease is healed, okay, so, so if somebody is leprous and they're in exile, right? They're away from their friends and their family and their work, anything. They can't touch anyone. And if for some reason they have to go into town, they have to shout out, unclean, unclean. So everyone would stay away because if somebody touches them, they become unclean. But if someone were to be healed, then the priest shall command that they take for him uh, who is to be cleansed two live clean birds. Uh, one is gonna be sacrificed and one is gonna be a escape bird. And cedar wood, cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. Here it is. That's the next time that this word is used. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. And he shall take the live bird with the cedar word and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them 
uh, dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water, and he shall sprinkle it. This is the priest. He shall sprinkle it uh, seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprous disease. And then he shall be pronounced to him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. All right, so this priest has this bird <laughs> that's soaked in the blood of the other bird and this hyssop and this other branch. And you can imagine, like, try to put yourself in, the, in, in, in a leper's shoes. You haven't seen somebody. You haven't, you haven't touched anybody. You haven't had a, a close, intimate conversation with anybody that you love or care about. You can't even go home. You can't sleep in your own bed. All the things. And now you've got a priest standing there, and he's sprinkling blood on you. And I, this is obviously not a, a, a physical cleansing, right? It's like, oh, now you just gave me some other disease. Thanks. Uh, no, that's not what's happening here, right? That that's this ceremonial cleansing. And the priest stood there and seven times said, you're clean, you're clean, you're clean. And you can imagine that feeling of, of the blood being splattered on you and just the tears of joy of saying, I'm, I'm clean now. That's hyssop. The next time that we see hyssop is going to be after King David commits murder and adultery, at best, adultery. And he has these massive sexual sins that enter into his life. And this is what the psalmist, King David, says in Psalm 51. King David is a student of the Bible. King David knows his Old Testament well. And he takes those two images of hyssop, one being used uh, in the Passover and the next one being used in the purity laws. And King David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now, does King David have leprosy? No. Does King David need the blood of a lamb to be on his doorpost and mint? No. He gets it. He says, something in me that needs to be washed. My, my guilt and my shame can be washed. It can be clean. It can be purified. It can be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, the bones that you have broken rejoice, right? That's that, that's that good, godly guilt that happens when we sin, and but knowing that we can be forgiven. Rejoice, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. That is expiation. And the psalmist is doing that by looking at hyssop. And again, this idea of scapegoat and sacrifice, he says this in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. David is getting ahead of the storyline. He said, these things don't matter. This isn't a, a physical blood being sprinkled on me. I need my soul cleansed. I can't just sacrifice an animal. I could, I'll sacrifice thousands of animals if I thought I was going to do anything. My heart needs to be changed. And the next time in the Bible that we see hyssop is actually at the cross. Right, just think about this. These are the four times in our Bible that we have the word hyssop. One's at the Passover. One's talking about cleansing laws. One is after David is confessing his sin, after adultery, and then we have it again at the cross. We're told this in John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. There's something here, even within that hyssop branch, 
in the presence of the blood of the lamb that's gonna take away the sins of the world, being nailed to a cross, in his shame, being physically naked and exposed to his best friends and his family, his mother, the shame that would come from that. And here we have this hyssop branch symbolically being used to talk about the cleansing and removal of sin. It's used again, not necessarily that word, but the, the, the themes of that are used again in the gospel and looking specifically at Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 14, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, again, the tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered in uh, once for all into the holy of holies, the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves as it was in the day, but by means of his own blood. He is the lamb. And he not only is the sacrificial lamb whose blood is going to be poured out and is going, to be, is going to die, but he is also the scapegoat. He's also the one who's going to remove our sins and is going to remove our guilt and our shame from us, thus securing eternal redemption for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, different purity laws, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. But he's saying, this is something about my body that's being, I don't have a leprous disease anymore. I don't have this thing that I'm unclean and now I'm becoming clean by this blood or by this thing happening. How much more will the blood of Christ who through his eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience? We live so much inside of our head. We live so much in our own minds. And, and so much of that, a definition of guilt and shame, whether real or imagined, something I've done or something somebody else has done, that we live in this ashamed, that we are not naked and unashamed, we're, we're hidden and we're covered and we are full of shame. So I want to purify your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. You, you, you can't do something. You can't live a certain way. You can't do some ritual. It's not some sacrifice of some animal you need to offer that, that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was already offered to cleanse our conscience. Then we see this specifically, this idea of our conscience then being cleansed and this theology of hyssop in Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have our confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. There was this huge veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And this veil, again, was only entered in once a year and when with sacrifice and now Jesus goes and after he dies, the ultimate sacrifice, the veil is torn in half and now anyone can go into the presence of God because of the finished work of Christ. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts, here it is, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus looks at every single one of us and when we're sitting there thinking, right, going back to the other analogy of I am this broken, dirty rose, Jesus sees us and says, I, I want that. I want to make a bouquet 
of all of these broken roses and I want to make my church and that's going to be my bride and I'm going to purify my bride by my blood and my sacrifice. Jesus wants you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 2, we preached through 1 Peter, I don't know, four years ago now. And we have this language, to those who are the elect exiles, that we, his church, we're, we're in exile, we're in this world, but we're not of the world of this dispersion, list of cities that these individuals have been spread out through. And it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. It, it, it paints a different mental image here. This is the same image that Peter's trying to conjure up in their minds of this sprinkling of the blood of cleansing and the blood of the lamb and the scape, everything is being brought to the forefront of our minds, but now I'm being sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so therefore, we get to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us. Sorry, I just slipped to King James there. And, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author and the finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's nothing joyful about execution and torture. The cross wasn't joyful. Jesus isn't up there singing, I don't know, I can't think of a happy song <laughs> because I'm happy. Right? He's, not, he's not up there doing that. Right? This is suffering and pain, but it was he endured the cross knowing what was coming. That freedom and forgiveness of sin was coming to anyone who had come to Christ and put their faith in him. And then he says this, this phrase that I really wanted to hinge on, despising the shame. And again, Jesus exposed, naked, nailed to a cross, for everyone to see the shame and he despises the shame and, the, and the, the things being done to him in that way. He despises it. But now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't think it's allegorizing that when Jesus looks at you, he despises your shame. He despises your shame the same way that he despised his own shame at the hands of other people of religion and culture and everything that was happening to him and betrayal by his best friends, everything that's going on, he despises that. And he looks at you and he says, I despise your guilt and your shame. I died, I took that on me and it was nailed to the cross and it's removed as far as the east is from the west and so stop identifying yourself as this thing because it's not that anymore. I see you, I know you, and I love you, and I died for you, and I shed my blood for you. Get rid of that. It's done. It's finished. Stop going back to it. So in gospel application, if you are in Christ, your sin is gone. And if you are in Christ, sins committed against you are despised. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by the sins of others committed against you. As we do every week here at Lower Town, we're going to have a time of communion. There's nothing miraculous about these elements, that it's just juice and, and a wafer. 
And as you take these elements that represent the broken body of Christ for you, think of him being nailed on the cross and the shame that he was experiencing, now saying, you're free from that. And as we drink the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us to cover our sins, but also to cover the sins that were committed against me, that he looks at all of you and with his blood, he looks at every single one of you and he says, you are clean. 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 Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I get to stand before you with, with my sin, with my struggles, with my inadequacies, with my, with my darkness and my depravity of my own heart that I can boldly approach your throne because your son has declared me clean. Not by anything that I could do, not by any doing of my own hands or some sacrificial system or being a good person or going to church and none of that. That my sexuality, my identity is broken. And you look at me and you say, Brian, you're clean. Cut it out. You've been set free from that. Why do you go back to be a slave to the bondage of what you once were in your sin? I have set you free to be free. Go and sin no more. So God, I pray as we take these elements that we would know and we would recognize that you have removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And not just my sins, but that guilt and that shame that puts me in hiding that makes it so I feel like I'm unable to be open with other people and be unashamed with other people. So God, I pray now that we would look at ourselves as clean because you have declared us clean in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.